Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. All right, guys, thank you for joining me. I am really looking forward to this conversation. I'm here with Tony Jones, with Jeff Green from Virginia Commonwealth University, and Daryl Van Tongren from Hope College. And we are really asking one big question with a one particular lens. The big question is, how can we get the benefits of religion without the potential dangers of religion? And the way we're looking at that today is through the lens of how much interpretation should we, will we leave up to congregants, to the group as a whole, as opposed to the pastor, the elders, whoever's in charge, sort of taking that mantle, or as Tony will call it, hermeneutical authority, hermeneutical authority, hermeneutical authority, right? So to set that up, I'm going to briefly summarize some research findings around spiritual abuse resistant healthy communities. And then Tony is going to tell a story about his experience in the emergent church, which will set up our tension. And then we're just going to talk about this uh, and see where it goes. So here is the summary Lisa Oakley, spiritual abuse researcher out of Chester in the UK, in her research, uh, with a collaborator of hers as well, they are looking at not only what is spiritual abuse, but how can we identify communities that are sort of spiritual abuse resistant? What do healthy spiritual or religious communities look like? And one of their findings is that healthy communities leave some interpretation up to the individual. And I was recently at Theology Beer Camp with Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity. Leah Robinson was doing her presentation on bad or harmful theology. And one of the points in her presentation was that bad theology does all of the interpretation for you. So we're finding some agreement here that it's potentially quite dangerous for a pastor or leadership group to say, this is what the sacred text means. This is what it says for all of us. And yet we have Tony's story, which I don't want to step on. So Tony, tell us what you told us at the JTF seminar thing that we were at in June together. 
Dan, I think you know most of your listeners are quite familiar with the emerging church movement. It was it was really active from 2000 to 2020, and I was a big part of that. And I came in from a more mainline context than virtually everybody else who was in that movement. They were all kind of fleeing the evangelical church, and they were disillusioned with a lot of the authoritarian structures and also like kind of the consumeristic aspect of evangelicalism. And as I was doing my doctoral research at Princeton in like 03, 04, 05, I studied the emerging church movement and was looking for commonalities in these different, you know, I maybe looked at a dozen congregations around the country. I did surveys and visited each congregation and and did like qualitative and quantitative research. And I guess one of the things that stuck out for me was this, in the leadership of each of those congregations, they were attempting to dismantle the monological sermon. They were attempting to say... What does monological mean? That means a one-way, just one person talking. Okay. Instead of a monologue, they were looking for a dialogue or a conversation. So in almost every one of these churches, there would, like at Solomon's Porch here in Minneapolis, Doug Padgett would sit in the middle of the community on a stool, on the stool that spins, he called it, and kind of lay some stuff out, but then lead a conversation with, you know, maybe there'd be 50, 60 people in the room. Journey in Dallas, Texas uh, was a very similar thing. They'd have dialogical sermons. I mean, I could just go around the country and do this. And like a lot of your listeners have probably seen like Brian McLaren speak publicly. You just know his whole persona is not one of like, I know all the answers. I have this figured out. Instead, it's one of like, let's have a conversation about this. Where's this truth taking us? This kind of thing. And here's what I found in my research and then in the subsequent collapse of the emerging church movement is that the parishioners, the people in the pews or the or in the 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 ratty old couches, as the case may be in emerging churches, they don't want their hermeneutical authority. They want to give it to the ordained person. Because the biblical text is super complex, you know, written between 1800 and 3,500 years ago in foreign languages they don't know, from cultures with which they are totally unfamiliar. Doug would say, I don't care if you have a PhD in theology or if you're a lawnmower repairman, you have some interpretive insight to bring to this text, and we're going to do this together. And, you know, at first blush, I think that was super interesting and intriguing to people who were sick of being talked down to by evangelical pastors or Catholic priests who have this kind of, you might even say, in, in theologically speaking, had this like ontological priority in these communities. For God's sake, in some churches, there's like a a literal altar rail, a literal fence. (laughs) Between the clergy and the congregation. Between the clergy and the congregation. You know, or I remember being told in seminary, when you're up in the pulpit, you're three feet above contradiction. Ha, ha, ha. Wink, (laughs) wink. Which is like ludicrous, but also real. People don't want hermeneutical authority in religious communities. Most people want somebody to tell them, tell me if abortion is right or wrong. Tell me if gay marriage is right or wrong. Tell me if Adam and Eve were real people or not real people. Don't say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's theopoetics. BS. Like That's not what most most people want. And the people who are open to having their own hermeneutical authority just, I think, leave religious communities. Because religious communities that, in my experience, and this is where I'll kind of land the plane, in my experience, the progressive religious communities, the ones that are dying before our eyes, are the ones that say, I don't have all the answers. We're going to figure this out together. Yeah. And those are dying. I mean, that that's empirically true. And the ones that still seem to have gas in the tanks, although they might be dying just more slowly, are the ones where answer, the hermeneutical answers are much more certain and they're delivered with an air of certainty. And I'll close with this anecdote. I had lunch with John Piper years ago. John Piper is a Reformed Baptist Calvinist 
very kind of famous for being in that version of Christianity that has all the answers. And we were having lunch and talking about the atonement because he he had heard that I was writing about the atonement and it very much worried him. The emergent church was this existential threat, he thought, to Christianity. And I said to him, you know, when you preach penal substitutionary atonement and you never tell the people in your congregation that there have been multiple versions of the atonement. Multiple theories, right. Yeah, tell them I like this one, but there are some other ones to choose from. And he stopped me. He held up his index finger and he said, you should never preach. That literally, I remember verbatim, you should never preach, he said to me. People need a single view of the atonement. And then he circled his other index finger around his raised index finger around which they can rally. And if you're going to give them multiple versions of the atonement, you're just going to confuse people. That's why you should never preach. So, <laughs> so <laughs> quite a jump. He could have just said, you should never preach multiple atonement <laughs> theories. He went further. You, Tony, should never preach because you even would have asked me that question, which that's that says something about him. But that's essentially the crux of what we're saying. You said at the JTF thing, John Piper was right, essentially, right? Yeah. For a sustainable religious community, he was probably onto something. Yeah. Okay, well, first I want to get Daryl and Jeff's sort of, what are your guys' reactions? What are your basic thoughts to this whole thing? And then I've got a couple questions that we might get to. So let's start with you, Daryl. I think that ideological homogeneity and existential security are very cohesive. Those those two things cohere. So when there's just one ideology and it's homogeneous and everybody gets around it, that just coheres groups, right? Everyone can just get on board and there's no discussion and everyone kind of knows if they're in and they're out. And it really facilitates groups moving together. Whenever there's any type of complexity or ideological heterogeneity, people are, are kind of confused. I think people want perceived autonomy. But at the end of the day, they want it without the weight of existential responsibility. So I want to be—I want to be under the illusion that I came to this conclusion on my own with my own autonomy. But I don't want to have to pay the heavy toll of being existentially responsible. Right at the end of the day, I really want someone else to have told me what to believe. But I wanted—I want to buy into that shared illusion that I got there on my own. And so when you say, like, let's just have a conversation, that's putting the responsibility too much in my forefront. I think that's where progressive folks go sometimes. They're like, yeah, yeah, I just want to have this conversation. But but I think we've got this existential concern of, of groundlessness or responsibility of freedom, right, where we actually have to bear the weight of making our own choices. And I'd much rather outsource that to someone else as long as I can live under that the illusion that I got there autonomously. Because... You know, don't tell me what to believe, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, but kind of how should I believe, right? Daryl, do you think that a good example of how that works out in more religious, religiously conservative communities is something like, quote unquote, it's all right here in the Bible. When you read it, you'll see that the Bible is clear, dot, dot, dot. So you can go further, lay Bible study leader who's really interested in the end times or really interested in, you know, gender questions and and how God made men and women or whatever you're interested in, you can go further, but we'll let you know here, it's going to be clear as you dig further in. And then lo and behold, when the person does that digging, they come to those conclusions, maybe because they are primed by their leader and community to come to those conclusions about what this super messy group of books actually says. There's not like one right way to approach the scripture. There's no, you can't just like read from nowhere. Everyone's coming with their own right. uh, perspective. You can't just like do the, read the Bible and do what it says because everyone has a different way of understanding that. I think progressives, though, similarly kind of fall into the same trap because progressives say, like, hey, if you were a thinking person and you were had, kind of had an autonomous way of thinking, you too would think just like me. And so I think that progressives have a similar type of ideological purity they just get a lot more reactive against it, right? They they feel a lot more uh, fettered by those types of constraints, thinking that other people, you know, came to the same conclusion as them. Uh, but they really, at the end of the day, kind of want people to come to the same conclusion as them. One of the, the uh, kind of taglines right now in, in kind of 
new versions of Christianity or evangelicalism is, you know, we're, we're going to set a big table up in the wilderness and invite people to that table. It's like, that's cool. That's great. But if, if you press on that, not everyone is actually invited to that table. It's just the people that weren't invited to the other table get to be invited to this table. And by the way, they're not the kids table. The other group's the kids table, right? So it's not actually like this all inclusiveness. At the end of the day, when you kind of get down to it, there still is some ideological homogeneity and people kind of do rally around singular points, even if they had different ways of getting there. But but I want to hear what Jeff thinks about this. One point that Daryl made that I want to underscore is just our need for certainty. I think when things are uncertain, we just don't feel as much meaning in, in, our, in our lives. And uh, by the way, Daryl is one of the world's experts in meaning in life not just him personally, but uh, the the scientific or empirical study of that. Uh, and so if there's all these different interpretations, you know, that's, that's just unsettling. And I would connect it to just thinking about groups in general, thinking about in-groups and out-groups and thinking about our social identities. They don't really have a coherent set of beliefs. Or to take it maybe a step further, I want to be part of the number one team. You know, I want to be part of that group that's the the, the definite truth. And they have to have one interpretation. So I, I would suspect that there would be a strong correlation between, you know, sort of certainty of belief and having the hierarchy give you interpretations and making more more exclusive claims or more uh, even extreme claims. Sometimes your your biggest rival is is the closest religion to you, you know, Protestants versus Catholics, rather than thinking about the Hindus as an outgroup. And so, you know, if if there's no real clarity and certainty of the the interpretation of this group well then it's not really any better than any any other group and and i want to i want to find the best one uh, and sometimes i think that means more certainty and and sometimes with more certainty might come more extremity i wonder how much that's driving religious disaffiliation in general just the rise of wikipedia the sort of inevitability of pluralism for someone growing up in the information and internet age versus the very slight samples of pluralism you might have had growing up in minnesota for instance 70 years ago right where it's like if there's something sort of that automatically happens about pluralism where you're like oh I, well then i guess whatever i have like the value is automatically decreased simply by being aware of the big variety of options. I mean, it harkens back to John Piper's point to Tony. People can't rally around that. Is this like a essentially a individual and group psychological law? I mean, like how how robust are these findings around this sort of in-group coherence stuff? I mean, what Jeff's saying is is pretty widely accepted. It's a pretty strong foundation, right? I'm going to defend my group. My group is the best. The other group uh, is the worst. Even on things such as like arbitrary group membership, we get incredibly favored to risk, you know, we favor our group and we kind of pejoratize out group members. So we're working against a moving sidewalk here because these are pretty strong and robust effects. Isn't it also true that the more intense the initiation into that group, the stronger the affiliation. And I just remember like going through hell, hell night at my fraternity at that same college and looking back on it and thinking, well, the reason they had us all get naked and like pick up grapes in our ass cheeks and walk them across the room and set them back down on an ice block on the other <laughs> side of the room, et cetera, et cetera. And the same reason the Marine Corps does... Right. You know, boot camp and hell week and all that, that stuff. So I'm wondering if that is true. That's like part A of the question. Part B of the question is, does that translate to religious communities like, say, Scientology, which has, has this kind of very intense secrecy around it and demands total fealty, stuff like that? It's an example of what we call cognitive dissonance. And in a nutshell, we have this, it's rational on one level and irrational on another level. We like to justify and rationalize uh, our effort and our suffering. And so leaders, especially unscrupulous leaders, they know that. And so the more the more hoops you have to jump through, the more uh, even you have to sacrifice financially, or even the more I embarrass you, perhaps, uh, you know, you have to 
confess your sins publicly in front of everybody, then the more dedicated you, know, you will be uh, to that group. Because otherwise, the implications for the self, you know, you just don't want to face that. So uh, it's this natural process to try to rationalize and, and justify that. That's the second time now that I've thought about Mark Driscoll. The first was the number one team thing. And there's a great episode in that Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that CT made. Basically, people are talking about, yeah, other people are Christians, but what God's really up to in Seattle is happening here at Mars Hill. That's that number one team thing. And then number two, this like a little bit of embarrassment. The friends I had that went there during those years, all of them would say, man, I come out of those services. These are men, especially. And Mark would really be hard on the men being like, man, I feel really beat up, but it also feels kind of good to be convicted by the Holy Spirit like that, you know? And so I'm one, like, that's the language they gave, but you could give social psychology language around it of like, yeah, he's making it a higher bar for uh, acceptance. And I looked at that and was like, no fucking thank you. I'm not going to go to that church. But if you agree to that and stick through it, well, now you're more... Now you're more tied in. Now you're no, more bought in, right? When you have processes like that where people are suffering together, I don't know if there was any team element of picking up the grapes, uh, Tony, if that was solo, but just just going through that experience <laughs> together and, and especially any sort of personal disclosure you know, of my doubts, uh, my secrets, my uh, troubled past, that's going to bond people together even more. So that's kind of a secondary benefit that you might get on top of these dissonance processes of, uh, I'm going to be so much more enthusiastic about this group because I, I really had to work uh, to join or to uh, you know, maintain my position here. I think Jeff set this up so perfectly. If if that's your expectation for what relationship should be, is just this really intense community that gets you on every level and you're suffering together, it's going to be hard to find community members outside of that that structure, outside of that group that will scratch the itch in the same way. And so that that internal group will really feel like, oh, these are true friends. These are the people I have to be around. Now, for people who are trying to leave the church, the problem is you're not going to find a community that's that cohesive, that feels that close, that has that type of shared suffering until you find people who have similarly left the church. And then you engage in kind of this sense of trauma bonding where you're kind of reliving your suffering together. You can kind of find those deep connections. You can have that deep disclosure and you can kind of find a, a sense of connection that might mirror kind of what you had inside the walls of a church. The problem with that though, is sometimes you just circle around the trauma and the relationship doesn't grow much further than that. And you kind of just get mired in kind of an identity that's defined as, as being wounded or hurt by the church and, and kind of what else can the relationship offer? What, what's the future trajectory? That's anecdotally exactly what I've seen throughout sort of a spattering of sort of deconstructing post-evangelical spaces is the ones with the strongest identity and uh, the most fervent sort of what appear to me, the most fervent group membership and activity are the ones that don't seem to have like moved on at all and don't seem to be asking new constructive questions. So essentially what I'm saying is I am part of the new emerging movement of post-evangelicals who will eventually numerically fail, perhaps, is, is uh, it's sad. Like, my, my overarching question here is, like, is it possible to get these benefits without the potential cost? And so far, Daryl and Jeff, I'm hearing from you, no, it is not possible. Like, there is a pretty strong rule of thumb that you get the most meaning, you get the most value out of membership in a group that is exclusive, that is the best group, that requires personal sacrifice. Some of that you could have without it being potentially abusive or sort of increasing outgroup hatred or whatever, if you happen to have a really good person as your leader. But so much of that is seems baked into the cake. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that is baked in the cake. And the other thing that religion does is it offers these eternal promises that no other 
non-religious meaning system or group can offer, right? And it's like, not only is my group the best now and for the rest of this life, but my group is the best for all eternity, forever and ever. It's it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and, and someone yells infinity or whatever, like they won first, like they kind of like won the, the yeah. argument. And so if it goes on to infinity, like you're, you're solving the problem of death, you're promising an eternal benefit for you and your group and potentially eternal suffering for the outgroup members, it's really hard to beat that by just like volunteering at the soup kitchen or being part of a biking club. I'm not sure that you'll you'll get the same results. When people leave those groups and come to recognize the fact of their finitude, the fact of their freedom, the fact of their uncertainty around life and death— and their uncertainty about ultimate values and and truth claims or whatever, then they go, all right, now we got something really to work with. And I agree with them. But there's sort of like a, you only get to that point if you've left one of these groups. And if you're in one of these groups, you're not at that point. You're, You're basically not dealing with those things. And in places like Europe, where they had two world wars on their soil back to back, essentially, less than a generation apart, that seems to have accelerated much quicker than it has here in the States. And here we have a lot more people who have not really gotten to that point. But that seems to be the cutoff. And what you guys are essentially saying is like, yeah, there's tremendous sort of attractive value for these groups if you can keep people from having to get to that point of of needing these existential concerns in a not like where you're not just given those answers by a religious authority is that right yeah i mean there's lots of ways to meet these existential concerns i think religion might do it better than anything else that's packaged together and it's it's kind of one of the only ones that addresses the the fear of death by just saying like it's not even a problem. I think one of the problems though is when people leave religion and they're trying to satisfy these existential concerns outside of religion, I think they encounter what I would call the existential chasm. So they've previously had all these and these existential questions answered in a coherent way. They've had the problem of death solved for them, meaning solved for them, and now they're having to reevaluate these existential concerns afresh. But with the grief of realizing their previous way of answering it is no longer sufficient, and potentially with a a fresh encounter that death may be the final outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think that accompanies grief and anxiety to a higher level than people who have never entertained the fact that life might go on or may never have encountered these religious beliefs because they don't have to grieve the loss of those promises or those beliefs. Yeah, I've been wanting to work on some sort of project book or maybe a podcast miniseries like The Infinity Hangover, which I just consistently feel like 15 years into my ongoing deconstruction. Like that part doesn't seem to have really gone away. But I do have a question because like Lisa Miller's work, for instance, out of Columbia around spirituality, you know, she says someone's engaging in spiritual activities. And by the way, her definition of spirituality is connection to a higher power that is loving and guiding. So not necessarily that sort of existential security. Death could still be the end, but there's something bigger that has our welfare in mind. That's like one of the biggest deterrents of depression. And that's across people of various religiosity and no religion, right? So I'm wondering... Like, if I come from no religion and then I become spiritual versus if I come out of fundamentalism and then all I've got, air quotes, is this meager spirituality or whatever, do you think that's a differential path for people? It's very hard to have answered those questions and then you're sort of back to square one. And it's a tremendous change of, of identity it just takes a long time i think to uh, to recover from that you, you not only have kind of lost your community but you've sort of lost your maybe your life plan and your entire life philosophy about everything i did was at least in light of this idea that i i, I knew what was going to happen after death and maybe most of what i was doing even 
at least in my mind, was was guided by that. And so now I'm both the, the, the here and now and the afterlife or non-afterlife, uh, I'm, I'm just adrift. So you probably know if you've been listening to this podcast that you can join the Patreon community for five bucks a month, support this work financially, get access to exclusive episodes, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. And there will be a Discord coming in the near future once I can get my uh, stuff together. Uh, Also, ad-free episodes. Some of you get ads dropped in. Kind of depends on the listener. I don't exactly understand how that works, but uh, patrons have access to ad-free and unedited, or less edited, I should say, longer, fuller conversations on the patron-only feed. The most recent patron-exclusive episode is a conversation with our good friend, Sari Martin Concepcion. We talk about film, Christian horror film, supernatural horror film. She is currently crowdfunding for a sci-fi short film. She is already an award-winning director of a short film called Father Mary. And I think that we can help make her dream a reality. I would like to challenge you guys to go to winemakermovie.com and give Sari the cost of one movie ticket. Give her 12 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever it costs, wherever you live. And let's just pay a little bit forward. If you can afford it, let's pay it forward to a friend of the podcast. Here's a description from Sari about the film. Yeah, um, there's layers to the onion, but uh, usually the first, the top of the onion is it's going to be an eerie sci-fi short film that'll be a proof of concept for a feature film idea that I have. And it'll be set at a winery. The protagonist is a winemaker, and she is actually, spoiler alert, an extraterrestrial hiding out on Earth. She found this love of winemaking, though. Towards the beginning of the film, she realizes, uh, or she finds out, that her people know where she is. They've located her, and they're coming for her. And the rest of the film is about her the tension between, actually, she's trying to finish the year's vintage before they show up. And it ends with a confrontation at a winery. I'll tell you how the crowdfunding budget story ends. She's going to meet her goal. Let's be a part of her meeting her goal. And uh, yeah. So if you want to hear that whole conversation, we get into different kinds of films that speak to faith, films we've avoided because we were too afraid for faith reasons to watch them, all that fun stuff. Uh, on the patron feed, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. All right, back to my very, very interesting conversation with Daryl, Jeff, and Tony. Uh, Dan, I know you want to talk about spiritual abuse. I was just thinking about this, Jeff, something you said about, well, both you guys talked about these these processes of identifying with a group that often comes with like kind of radical disclosure and these shared bonding experiences. So let me just give you two examples. And I think in our minds, culturally, they're very, very different. And one seems to have led to a great deal of abuse and the other hasn't. But they both kind of thrive on a ton of disclosure from the individuals, participants. And one is the Church of Scientology and like the auditing process, you know, and the other is Alcoholics Anonymous, yep. where people go and just like li- like rip their chests open and pour their guts, like tell about the most terrible things they've ever done, maybe last week, you know, and and they're lauded for that. And they're also lauded for it in the Church of Scientology, but obviously all the stuff has come out about how abusive, and there are differences, obviously, AA is locally run they're not a money-making scheme you know any scientology obviously has a very kind of like a titular head guy and they obviously take a ton of money from so maybe those that's the difference but maybe are there i wonder if there are other differences as to why one of those communities would seem to lead to, to become abusive and the other would not one thing I'm I'm wondering about is just the way the the power structures are set up in those two different communities, right? So there's a pretty clear hierarchy in Scientology, 
And imagining some implied pressure, even if people might not be as willing. Whereas my understanding is AA is more like the power dynamic is a little flatter, right? Like everybody there is an addict. Everybody there is kind of on the same level. Uh, and, it, and it's quite voluntary. I mean, even if people talk to their sponsors, their sponsors have sponsors and right. It's kind of like my therapist has a therapist, like everybody, like it's kind of like a, a flatter power structure. Right. And there's also not right. Like wh- what are the promises with each thing, right? Like you go through one process, you're, you're, you know, are you promised like power in life? And on the other one, you go through a process and it's like, you're going to get through another day and be a good person. And so I, I think the, the promises also might differ a bit. Tony, you you scooped me. That this is actually where I was going to go. Uh, I decided to leave some silence and see what came out from you guys. Therapy skill, by the way. Let the silence work for you. Uh, but the twelve step group, Jeff, does meet that threshold of disclosure, secrets, that sort of rawness. But Daryl's right that the brilliance of it is that it strips all authority out. There's no centralized authority, and that allows and and the and the anonymity right as well you can't use these things against someone whereas in mars hills culture if you fuck up all of a sudden you find yourself in a room with four other people that you didn't know knew the things you had told the one person about yourself right and so those and i'm sure this is true in scientology and other sort of quote-unquote high control religions is this information is weaponized effectively for for the authority of the group and 12-step Groups solve that with anonymity and with no power structure. They also seem to persist over time. People get very invested in this way of living such that it becomes truly, I mean, they call it, it's not a religion, it's a spiritual way of life, but it's a spiritual way of life that a lot of people stick with for decades and decades, right? And they support new acolytes and all that. However, in terms of the the context that we're talking about, can these groups thrive? In one sense, they thrive. In another sense, they rely on charitable donations of space from community centers and churches. They don't end up doing a bunch of work in the community because anonymity would prevent that, which is seems like a good trade-off. But they don't, they're not bringing kind of the same robustness that a proper religious community might bring to the community, to individual people's lives. One question I have is like, is this essentially the best we can do? The best we can hope for is something like 12 step if we are not going to have a big ecclesial and hermeneutic authority structure? I think that's mostly true. There's a little bit of hierarchy in the sense of, you know, the, the your sponsor has a sponsor. And so you get to a point where you're helping others. And so when you're just doing something, reaching out, being responsible, that that's huge. And so I think, you know, various religious and non-religious groups like to do that. That's how you get people sort of solidly in the group. Uh, you know, I think the reason the Mormons have been successful, other than their prodigious birth rate, is, uh, you know, they had those two-year missions. I, I think that's probably more yeah. for the missionaries. It doesn't matter if you don't convert anybody. If you sacrifice those two years, like, you know, you're in for life. That's the time when most people will leave their their birth religion. But without these deeper existential things, you know, AA is more prevention-focused. You know, we just don't want you to screw up. Whereas you know, most of these religions are promotion focused. Like we're, this is not only the path, sort of the one path for how to lead the most successful life, but also successful afterlife. You only start 12 step meetings when you are really suffering. People often will join religious communities when they're suffering, but it's not the only reason. You might join a religious community because your kid likes going to church and the soccer team families go to a local church that looks pretty good to you. You know, like it isn't only because of suffering and it's not primarily focused on relieving or keeping you from repeating that suffering through your addictive behaviors. What do you make of like the Amish rumspringer where a kid reaches 18 and gets to go, you know, there's documentaries about these kids. Like they go live in trailers with each other. They just have like crazy amounts of sex. They're doing all sorts of crazy drugs and whatever. And then most of them at the end of their year, their year of sabbatical from Amishness rematriculate back into the Amish community. Is that because the first 18 years 
they sacrificed so much that the 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 gravitational pull of that community is stronger than the 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 lure of drugs and sex or something like that. From living in Japan, I I thought about a Japanese college students because high school is just full of brutal pressure. They're all wearing uniforms. They they're going to school, then they're going to night school tutoring, you know, and then they get into college and they have four years of freedom, right? They wear whatever they want to do and they sleep late and they goof off and college is not that hard. But then after that, they go right into that business world and it's, you know, it's fraternity hazing in in another sense. Uh, So yeah, it's like there's this uh, completely disjointed period of time, uh, but that they, you know, all the rest of their life has sort of led up to that. And so I think just at least to some extent, they're inoculated against it. Let me ask Daryl a similar question about like your college is a Christian college. I, I'm seeing a lot of evangelical colleges, which a lot of Dan's listeners attended evangelical colleges. And I was just on the phone with a friend of mine a couple of days ago, and he's like very embarrassed to tell me that his kid was going to Bethel where he went. And I'm like, yeah. Kids should never go to an evangelical college. No offense, Daryl, but I'm like constantly telling people, don't let your kid go to an evangelical college. But he's like, oh, it's not like it used to be. They don't have mandatory chapel anymore. And they've like relaxed the lifestyle statement. So in some ways, what you guys are saying, I mean, on a purely like social theory level is these colleges, these evangelical schools, if they're lowering the moral standards of their undergrads are actually undercutting like the social cohesion that used to be part of being in those institutions. So I'm at like Daryl at your school, have they done that? And what's your take on that? Yeah, it's fascinating. So hope is not evangelical. So hope, uh, they make no requirements of their students to be religious. There's nothing for their students to sign, whether that's theological or lifestyle wise. And most of the students are religious and, and, and most of them are Christian. But hope's also an interesting, uh, space, Tony, because hope does everything that we're talking about that you shouldn't do. And somehow it's working. So they're intentionally creating a lot of tension ideologically. So, Whereas just down the road, we have Calvin College that is ideologically very homogeneous. The faculty, staff, students all have to affirm certain theological doctrines. At Hope, the, the general gist is that the faculty need to affirm the historic Christian faith, and then that's a pretty big tent. And so we've got people on every side of every issue that creates overwhelming tension and it makes it hard to move this really big, complex machine. And yet somehow it's providing a space where, where, where what it's doing is it's providing spaces for students who are on different sides of every issue or of different identities or, or different approaches to faith to at least find someone in their community with whom they can connect. I, I think one of the things that we've kind of circled around, I think there's two things. One thing that we've circled around is I think relationships are kind of what keep things enduring, right? And if you can have a relationship and you can make a connection with a person, that's something that's going to help the stickiness of religion. I think meaning is one of the most powerful motivators, right? So if you're thinking about the Amish, they spend 18 years kind of getting a meaning system, then they get, what, a year to kind of blow off some steam and do a whole bunch of stuff that we giggle around, like, ooh, it's amazing, this is so fun, right? They're hanging out with all their buddies, doing these wildly hedonistic things. And while that's, like, that might increase happiness for a bit, I don't think any of us, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think any of us would orient our life philosophy around purely hedonistic pleasure-seeking, right? So after a while, like, it's kind of like if you're never allowed to eat, eat candy or if you have braces, right, and you can't eat a certain thing, you eat it for a bit, but that's not going to sustain your entire life, right? You can't eat bowls of icing every day. And so I think meaning is such a strong motivator. Eventually, I'm wondering if why a lot of them return is it's like, well, I had this pretty structured meaning system that just made sense to me and it felt pretty good. And, and I've spent the most of my life, like Jeff saying, viewing the world through this schema of religion that just kind of feels comfortable to me. Whereas doing this fun stuff and kind of quote unquote, breaking the rules or blowing off this, uh, you know, moralistic repression was nice. I I don't see that as being particularly fulfilling, especially as people age. Right. And, and, and they're kind of more contemplative. They're kind of, maybe their bodies aren't uh, allowing them to run as fast or jump as far or do some of the things that provided them as, as much happiness. 
So, Daryl, I wonder if this is a good way of understanding kind of what we were talking about earlier about various pathways that people have out of something like evangelicalism. So maybe Tony and I and a lot of people who are sort of coming from my perspective look at some of the more reactionary post-evangelicals and we go, look, guys, isn't this whole thing about truth and accuracy, and aren't you just keeping the same basic sort of brain system going on, and you're just replacing the referent? You're just saying, well, now now the other team is the good guy, and the other team is the bad guy from what it used to be. And Tony and I are like, well, that's obviously going to also be false, because in neither situation, Tony, I'm roping you into this, in neither situation are we like thinking about being accurate and, and being careful or whatever. But from a meaning perspective, what that person has done is they have minimized the gap between the meaning they had in their conservative religious environment and the new meaning that they have, which is quite similar in their sort of, let's just say, leftist political environment or whatever it is that they've sort of replaced it with this fictional person <laughs> in, in, the, in the example here. I think that's an interesting lens to look at it through. Yeah, I, I mean, William James said a great many people think they're thinking when they're just rearranging their prejudices, right? And so <laughs> I think what, what we're doing is, a lot of people are doing, is they're just finding new targets for their vitriol. So super religious fundamentalists are coming out and they're being super politically leftist fundamentalists, right? And they're like, in the same way that there was a purity culture for not having sex, there's a liberal purity culture of make sure you virtue signal. And if you're not about this new topic that came up yesterday and your Instagram feed isn't supporting this new GoFundMe, you're probably not as liberal as me, right? And and we're all kind of chuckling and we're like, oh, what, what was the thing that came out yesterday? Because like you're mentioning, I think a lot of these functions are personality, right? They're, if you're a fundamentalist person who got attracted to kind of this hardcore hierarchical uh, religious system, or that's where you did a lot of your formative years, you're going to come out looking for another kind of hierarchical fundamentalist way to orient your meaning. And so, yeah, in a way, I think it's a meaning replacement hypothesis. I had this one meaning, now I've got this other meaning. And this is why I think people are going to be asking these questions for the next 50 years here in America. It's going to be asymptotic. You're never going to cross the threshold of religion. You're going to get really, really close to doing what religion does, but you can never quite do what religion does because religion just nails all of those existential concerns better than anything else, and it solves the problem of death. And to the degree that we we get uncomfortable about dying, no matter how politically active you are, you're screwed when you die, right? But if you're religious... There's that hope that there's something more. From that existential perspective, if I was a betting person, I'd put money on religion as at least being appealing. I'm very convinced by the data that suggests Christianity is going to be a minority religion in 50 years. I'm, I, I don't doubt that. Sure. But in terms of its existential appeal or its uh, motivation for meaning, it's really hard to beat. I'm an interesting kind of middle case in the schema you just laid out where I still do have religious experience, which does give me hope that there is something after I die, but I no longer have anything close to certainty about that. I have enduring doubt. And in fact, it's not just about me. I mean, my deepest sort of philosophical and moral intuitions, theological intuitions, are that if there is not something after this life, then God does not exist in the kind of way that it seems to me that God exists, because that means that these lives for so many creatures, including humans, but not limited to humans, are thoroughly unjust and that God is not worthy of the same level of, of whatever that I tend to think God's worthy of. And so that's kind of why I like the infinity hangover uh, framing, because it's not a religion hangover. I still have religion, but I don't have that infinite, the infinite stakes, the infinite sort of meaning that comes from, from that and from that certainty. But neither do I have none of it. I'm not convinced that it's all over when I die. I actually, I don't think there's good enough arguments for that. But 
you know, it's this limbo. And I like what you're saying. It's I'm never it's never going to reach that old thing. And I've spent 10, 15 years now learn trying to learn to be okay with it, that it's not going to reach that. Nonetheless, I can have meaning. And, you know, like to bring Lisa Miller back in, people who have spiritual practice have meaning. But I like what you're saying that, like, there is a certain, like, it's not, <laughs> put it this way, your peanut butter mood smoothie from Jamba Juice is never going to be a fucking milkshake again. It just isn't. It's tasty. You get a little chocolate. You get that kind of creaminess. It's not a milkshake. It never will be a milkshake. You need the community, right? You need the people and you, you need a mission. You need, you need sort of a guide. And so I find it interesting that people that leave a religion, especially leave a cult, often their, their mission becomes exactly the reverse. So this is what Daryl was saying, but maybe just another step. Uh, you know, so some of the, the most prominent anti-cult uh, people that are, you know, they have this mission of you know, saving people. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, it becomes a little stride and a little too far, but they themselves were, were in a cult. So they, they know of which they speak. So maybe you can get the community and you can get sort of this mission. And, and there's some recent research in social psychology about having secret information too, or, or like special. And so you're, you're special and you're elect in some sense, but, but you don't have the afterlife. And so what I'm leading up to mm. is the proliferation of these scary and dangerous and violent uh, conspiracy theories. So, you know, Donald Trump has advanced a number of these, but when you think about Pizzagate and, uh, and all of those uh, related QAnon kinds of conspiracies, People's behavior in it, those are religious beliefs for the most part. I don't know if there's any kind of afterlife uh, aspect to it. If there is, that would be absolutely fascinating and that would maybe help to explain the power. But, you know, but you have the in-group and out-group, you know, you have the, uh, you know, I'm attacked and, and aggrieved. My, my way of life is, is, is endangered. And maybe, maybe there is a very high percentage of these folks who are, religious or specifically Christian. But it's interesting that ultimately the focus is on these really disprovable beliefs that's, that nevertheless persist no matter what kind of evidence is put forth uh, to show that that it's nonsense. Uh, they are, they're all in. And, you know, and again, numerous people have been all into the point of taking up arms and, and trying to hurt somebody. Yeah, that, that's a good point about being being in on the the cosmic secret, right? Like it feels really good to know that the lizard people are out there, right? And I feel extra special by knowing that. That's extra meaningful. I I just know that a lot of QAnon people, anecdotally, the people I know personally who are into it, but also I've I've read this online. There is a, a quite a bit of crossover with conservative Christians, and the folks that I know. Ha have a very robust afterlife. In fact, they bring in the Nephilim and the divine council and all the sort of spiritual world, you know, that whole kind of interpretation of the Bible. And the idea is that us liberals have sort of lost that. And so I don't know, it would be interesting to see for what percentage of QAnon believers is there that religious overlay. Uh, but I know that for the couple people I know, there is. And so that the certainty and eternal stakes and all that, they've connected it fairly seamlessly, but it can't be nearly, I mean, it just, it must not be the same percentage as people in fundamentalist Protestant churches, right? It's got to be a lower percentage that have that. And that's a good question of what's that doing? What's the secret information doing, you know, separable from the infinite stakes and the infinite explanatory power? I want to put two things that you guys said kind of juxtapose them because Daryl, I'd like to think you're right that the like existential fear of death is a durable human trait and people will continue to, I think maybe it's why like stoicism is like having a moment right now, you know, this kind of thing. But I wonder if instead it's actually just irrationality that Jeff's talking about. That's the durable human trait. I just wonder if even though obviously fear of death has been a part of homo sapiens for since prehistory, if maybe that might come to an end with like this era of disenchantment and like the, the primacy of science, I'll just say anecdotally, like my kids, when I try to talk my kids about death, 
I, I thought about death all the time when I was their age. Now, I was like a super churchy kid along with Jeff at college. Like we went to a secular school and we're in the most conservative Christian campus group because that's what was, in, you know, and we talked about the afterlife and oh, don't all these kids know that they're, you know, bound for hell and we're trying to save them and stuff like that. I thought about it all the time. My kids don't think about it at all. It's just now maybe when they get older, they get cancer or their kid has cancer. Suddenly they're going to be like, I'm afraid of death. But also, maybe not. Maybe they're not going to be. And maybe that's like some part of the legacy of rapidly changing times we're in. I, I don't know. I'm just wondering if if that changes, Daryl, if, if people aren't afraid of death two or three generations from now, if that undercuts your your idea that religion will somehow still be durable or the Christian story will somehow still be attractive to people. I, I would agree with you that I mean, just kind of accepting the existential realities as facts rather than fears is probably way healthier, right? Like, I'm with you. Like, I've accepted the fact that eh, I'm going to die. No one really missed me before I was here. I'm pretty sure no one's going to, very few people will miss me after I'm gone. I'm okay with that, right? Like, kind of come to terms with that. But but it's probably taken a lot of work to do that. And maybe maybe collectively, we as a society can do that work, right? Maybe collectively, we can just kind of remind people it's all going to end, it's going to happen. Um, usually, research suggests when we have large-scale reminders of that, people kind of get more defensive, more prejudiced, and, and double down on their ideologies. Let's even take death off the table. I still think meaning remains a concern. Meaning and kind of the the need to perceive one's life as meaningful and contribute to the world in permanent and kind of enduring ways. And And religious meaning tends to be a little bit more meaningful. Like when you ask people to consider two different events, the religious kind of intimation uh, or instantiation of an event tends to be more meaningful than a non-religious one. So like religious meaning carries a little bit more power than, than non-religious meaning. And again, maybe that's also something that, that culturally might shift, right? Maybe as uh, religion kind of loses some of its cultural cachet and power and it becomes less of a central part of our identity, maybe some of that will shift too. And so yeah, Tony, I mean, I think your questions are good. I think your questions are are ones that we will collectively start empirically testing over time. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that Dan and I have talked about on the patron feed goes back to what Jeff said, even about like QAnon, is that what's what one of the interesting things that, for instance, Ryan Burge has pointed out is how many evangelical people who identify as evangelicals don't actually go to church, which would like was unheard of when Jeff and I were growing up. If you were an evangelical, you went to an evangelical church. But now evangelicals like this cultural category in some ways, like for some people, they don't go to a church, but that QAnon fulfills that that religious, I don't know, yeah. something scratch they're looking itch. for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to wrap up here with just giving uh especially Jeff and Daryl a chance, you know, from the research, from your guys' understanding this is a tough conversation, especially for those of us who do think that God is in some sense real and at work. It's it's actually really fascinating to put that in conversation with these sort of fundamental human tendencies. You can, of course, go even further to sort of transhumanism and, and wondering how some of those in, in the future of God's creation might be overcome. But for now, we're here in these human bodies. Do you guys have any advice? Is there any... Are there any takeaways from the research about for those of us who nonetheless want to be in communities where there is some religious or spiritual aspect, whether that is more progressive Christianity or just intentional groups of some kind or another, how can those be effective? Are there ways to increase meaning? Are there ways to facilitate those relationships that do keep things enduring? Um, to come back to Daryl's points earlier. I think one possibility might be uh, humility. And uh, I want to point out the irony of, I'm, I'm now going to talk about the research that Daryl and I have done, mostly Daryl. And Daryl has uh, this wonderful uh, sort of lay layman's book uh, called Humble that summarizes uh, all the latest research on humility. And he's done a lion's share of that. That could be something that 
cross cuts these different groups, you know, because certainly most major religions advocate for humility. Uh, the problem is when it comes to those deep seated beliefs, when it comes to existential humility, that's a lot harder because I think as we have studied humility, uh, you know, from a scientific perspective for what Daryl probably 10 years or less, you know, one of the essential elements is, is kind of a healthy doubt. And, you know, sometimes People in evangelical and similar religious groups are explicitly told to to not doubt, to not question. Others aren't, certainly. And so just getting to that point makes you a little bit more vulnerable. But I think realizing that, you know, our our understanding is just so limited. Um, My first university position was at a startup university. I was the psychologist and I talked to the a physicist, my friend fought, and he would show this video, the secrets of the psychics in his class. I said, wait a minute, that's, that's my stuff. You know, don't steal my stuff. Um, But then he would talk to me about uh, string theory. And I would realize I have no idea how the world works, how the universe works. You know, I focus on humans, but if you expand it, like I know absolutely nothing. And I, you know, and being a psychologist for 30 years, I still know essentially nothing about human behavior. And so that's unsettling on the one hand, but it does, allow a certain kind of freedom. I think that's kind of consistent with these existential philosophers. There's almost a a meta humility, perhaps, and this is Daryl's research you talked to me about a week ago, where you might have less existential security. You know, you may be making a sacrifice by questioning, by doubting, by being willing to even share that you have doubts. But I think you'll probably be a, a better citizen. You might be a better advocate for your own own religion by and because you're not going to engage in in this strident in group out group and condemning other people. Uh, and so that may be one way. Daryl may have different ideas, or he may want to uh, elaborate because he knows a lot more about humility. Uh, than me. Um, he, he was supposed to dedicate his book to me and say that he learned everything about humility from me. Didn't, but didn't. Wow. I just, just very briefly, one thing I've noticed is that some of that security has been replaced with awe and wonder. That's a, a note you get a lot from people who have left these religious communities is like, well, the world is so much bigger than I thought it was. And there is a value there is meaning in seeing that you're a part of something bigger. That can, of course, be anxiety-producing, depending on your personality. Another thing you might get is you might be able to keep your kids closer to you because the kids are fleeing these communities that are higher in meaning and higher in existential security, and the kids just don't find it compelling. And maybe that's information age, et cetera, et cetera. Daryl? I mean, I, you know, humility is kind of seeing yourself as the right size, not too big and not too small. And in some situations, the right size is actually really, really small, right? And especially if we're thinking about relation to God, the universe, these existential questions, like we're really, really insignificant. And, and Jeff, I think Jeff hit the point very well. That's so freeing to be so insignificant, to know that it almost that, you know, I, I matter, I guess, but not that much. Just takes so much of the pressure off. And then being able then to live and develop some existential distress tolerance. So yeah, it it makes us more vulnerable and it makes us more anxious. Maybe that's fine. And I know this is very anti-American to say, but like it'd be fine just to live with a little bit of anxiety and not have to perpetually pursue nonstop happiness and positive emotion at all points. Like maybe that's just the price we pay, like Jeff's saying, for being a better person and not for being an exclusionary kind of selfish jerk. Uh, we just bear the brunt of a little bit of existential anxiety, and it does everyone a little bit of good. To bring in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a modality I like and a way of sort of just it's a lens I like from the psychological literature, you you do have these this anxiety, but you identify your values and your goals and you say, well, how much distress can I live with toward accomplishing goals that I find very meaningful and valuable. And in that modality, you're not primarily trying to get rid of that mental distress. You are primarily trying to facilitate meaningful goal-directed lives. And if you can do that, then your distress goes down. And so it is possible, you know, at sort of a grand scale that we've become too used to living where we're just trying to get that distress down, get that distress down, get that distress down, and we could all benefit from accepting a little bit of that distress on our way to something that we find meaningful. 
that's probably a good, pretty good place to end things. I don't know if we're going to get a higher point than that. And we're running out of time anyway. So I'll just say thank you to everybody. I'll have a link to everyone's faculty profile in the show notes, as well as the humility book. And people can follow those links to other publications if they want. Tony, Daryl, Jeff, thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. This is fascinating.